Hi, I'm Olivia McCollins, and this is Purdue, the official podcast for Purdue University. Our conversations and stories feature Boilermaker students, faculty and staff, and alumni taking small steps toward their giant leaps and inspiring others to do the same. In part one of this episode, I speak with Rayvon Fouché, a professor and the director of the American Studies program in the College of Liberal Arts. He's fascinated with the impact technology has on our everyday lives. Describing himself as a cultural historian, Fouché observes the intersections and relationships among cultural representation, racial identification, and technological design. In recent years, he has studied how technology and science work together to shape athletic performance specifically the field of technoscience. In part two of this episode, we share the story and impact of the Purdue Black Cultural Center, which celebrated its 50th anniversary last year. How do you define technoscience? I think technoscience is a term that brings together our understandings of technology and science. Historically, technology has been seen as the application of scientific knowledge. So scientists go out in the world and find objective truths about the universe. And then people such as engineers or folks who apply technological knowledge, what they would do is they would figure out a way to mold, shape, build, construct, and create our understandings of that scientific knowledge into material objects. However, we've gotten to the point right now where the distinction between those scientific truths of the world and the application of those is getting much more muddled, meaning that engineers, designers, people that manipulate technology are also understanding and recreating knowledge about the world in which we live. So it's important for us to understand the interconnecting linkages between technology and science. So it's no longer good enough to separate them as two distinct ways of knowing and learning about the world. So the term technoscience takes into account the interconnected and overlapping relationships between technical knowledge and scientific knowledge. What are some examples of technoscience in our everyday lives? How do we see the technoscience at work? Well, oftentimes I use an example of, say, a pen. We think about a pen as a device in which to write, but underlying that is a whole different way of thinking about the forming and manipulating plastics, forming, manipulating inks, how to get the ball of, say, a ballpoint pen to roll at the specific rate to not overly saturate your paper with ink, but enough to write on it. And that's an example of the ways in which a material object brings together technology and science. But what also the work I study gets at is in the ways in which that knowledge can be interpreted in different ways. Because oftentimes you would think about a pen Mm -hmm. as a writing device. But people have used a pen to do all kinds of things, to scratch their ear, to throw it across the room to get someone's attention, to use as a weapon. So what I'm trying to get at is there's an understanding that there's a level of interpretive flexibility in how people understand material objects. And part of the thing way thinking about technoscience is to understand how society, culture, technology, material science all come together to produce devices that allow us to do lots of different things in lots of different places in ways that we traditionally wouldn't think would be relevant to 
a simple device like a pen. So you focus a lot of your time studying technoscience and its impact in sports. Before we talk about the specifics of that research, what life event or experience influenced your interest in looking at these two seemingly different areas? I guess I would go back to early college and early graduate school. When I was in my late teens, early 20s, I was an elite level cyclist, competed in the 1992 Olympic trials, and was fascinated with the technology that was exploding in the context of elite level cycling. So what you saw transitioning was bicycle frames being built out of steel. They're moving to materials like aluminum, to carbon fiber, and people are trying to figure out how to build a lighter, stronger, stiffer bicycle. And I was in this space where I was thinking constantly about how my equipment and technology can help me get in a better position to compete. And you saw the emerging technologic or techno-scientific materials from moving from wool shorts to elastane, spandex materials. And all of these things were changing the ways in which we think about science and technology. So in my early years of graduate school, I was thinking about writing a dissertation on the emergence of technology within the context of sport. And a lot of the things that really affected me directly were that you would see them on a daily basis. So I was riding a carbon fiber bicycle. One of my closest teammates was riding a steel bicycle. And my bicycle was substantially lighter than his. And you could see that when if you're going to climb or do a race that required lightness, it just was a no-brainer that a lighter bicycle was a better tool mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. context. Mm -hmm. So those are the, some of the kind of issues that got me thinking about the relationship between science, technology, material science, and equipment, and, and sport. And we live in this moment where I'm fascinated with the, the tension around technology and sport, is that our society is very interested in every new device that can help us get healthier, get stronger, efficiently move through the world. And it's really great if we can apply the modern, most latest techno-scientific techno contrivance to make that happen. Mm -hmm. However, when it comes to sport, we are really uncomfortable with any material object seeming to change the outcome of the narrative or the, the final competition of sports. We want athletes to show up with a hearty breakfast and a good attitude and compete. However, in the last 40, 50 years, athletes are showing up with that, but there's a whole world of techno-scientific material, equipment, designers, engineers, science being put into athletic competition to help athletes get better, stronger, faster, and at the end of the day, win. In a recent talk at the university, you titled your presentation is The Motor, Not the Machine. What did you mean by this phrase? Yes, that's a phrase that as a, a cyclist, my friends, my teammates, we would talk about all the time. And I think other sports have similar phrases. And the idea, it's the, the motor, not the machine. It's the idea that my body, not the bicycle, not the shoes, not the equipment, is vastly more important in the outcome of any sporting competition 
than the equipment. I've heard people who play tennis say it's the magician, not the wand. There are other kind of phrases that are all about trying to disavow the power of the technology and to reinstantiate one's belief and oneself. And again, it's not a surprise. As I always talk about as a 20-something athlete, one of the things that you need is unwavering confidence. I would say overconfidence in your athletic abilities. So the idea that you believe that your body can triumph over everything is is part and parcel of the business. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, the big question. It's the, the motor, not the machine, that, right, my, my body can do it all. And part of that is, again, telling ourselves that the technology doesn't matter. I don't care whether someone else is using, someone else is riding, someone else is doing. I can overcome all. Mm-hmm. So it's a deep belief in oneself and one's athletic ability. In that talk, uh, you mentioned examples in sports, and in particular, this interesting story of the 1954 World World Cup final, Hungary versus West Germany. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned a person named Adolf Dossler. Yes. Tell me about that. How does the 1954 World Cup final relate to technoscience? Adolf Dossler was a fascinating individual. began making athletic shoes in the late 20s, early 30s, and ended up creating the brand. His short name was Adi. His last name was Dossler. So you get Adidas. So he creates the the brand Adidas. And what's interesting is that he built the running shoes for Jesse Owens when he won his several Olympics at the Berlin Olympics. And what's interesting about the shoes is that the narrative, and I think some people have different versions of this or different beliefs of this story, but what happened in the 1954 World Cup Finals against Hungary? Hungary had been the best team in the world, had been crushing everyone. And what happens at the World Cup Finals is that the soccer game begins and it looks like any old soccer game and Hungary is going to probably kind of run roughshod over them. Mm-hmm. But it starts raining and hmm. it starts raining a lot. And definitely it's a downpour. And at halftime, Adolf Dossler had been working with the German management and produced a pair of soccer cleats that all the players were using. And what's unique about the cleats is that they had removable different shaped studs. And so at halftime, all the German players get a pair of soccer cleats with longer, more efficient, and grippier studs in the rain. And at that moment, they come out of halftime and end up beating Hungary. It becomes this unifying moment of around identity, around the game of soccer or football internationally, and transforms the country. What I do think is important about that story is that you have brands and companies like Adidas saying, maybe we should think about designing a shoe for different conditions, and that the shoe matters, and that if we can provide a specific tool that allows athletes to, in a sense, have better traction on a rainy day, we can affect the outcome of the game. And affecting the outcome of the game potentially will affect the, how people feel about themselves in a global, national way. Mm-hmm. So the saying is, it's the motor, not the machine. Are they more powerful together? Yeah, I think the end of the day, it's the motor and the machine. Mm. It's the human body and 
the techno-scientific devices that come together. And I think that's the part I find incredibly interesting about technology and sport is that bodies are all different and the ways in which people and their bodies react to certain technologies are really important. What would be the ta- some of the takeaways from your research for an ordinary listener? A couple takeaways. The first is that when you're watching and experiencing great athletic performances, either you can embrace them and just cheer them along, or you have to think about what else is going into that performance. So part of me feels like you have to give the, the engineers, the designers, the scientists their due as well. It's just not the great athletes. There's, there's a lot of people that are thinking very, very deeply and hard about these performances. Mm-hmm. And the second is that as the weekend warrior or a, a part-time athlete, there's a really amazing stuff to make your life a lot easier <laughs> and a lot, make you run faster mm-hmm. or jump higher or experience your, the world in which you experience sports in a great way. So there's amazing stuff being designed and built across the planet that, that makes sporting sport more fun. Skis are much easier to ski. Athletic shoes from the early 70s have transformed into wonderfully cushy, floating, magical slippers. And, and sport is really great. We now highlight the history and significance of the Purdue Black Cultural Center, celebrating its 50th anniversary last year. The center is a vibrant place for educating and uplifting, not just for African-American students, but all students here at Purdue University. The Black Cultural Center, for me, has been absolutely instrumental in my own personal growth. It has given me a sense of belonging and a boost of confidence. It is definitely a home away from home for me. It's been that way since the moment I stepped in here, actually. I think this is just a really special place that people really appreciate. The primary role of the Black Cultural Center is to promote academic excellence and cultural pride. And we do that in a variety of ways, whether it's through students being involved in our very robust performing arts ensemble program, or the guest speakers and performers that we have uh, come to the university to present public lectures and presentations so that we can educate the entire campus community about the contributions of African Americans. The reason why the Black Cultural Center is an important place is it allows students of color an opportunity to see themselves. Because representation does matter. If you see a model of someone who you want to be, you know, in the space that you're thinking of being in, you're that much more inclined to come here to do whatever it is that you want to do. This is where I can come in and I can just celebrate who I am fully and feel embraced and feel welcomed. In 2019, the Black Cultural Center is celebrating their 50th anniversary. The 50th anniversary is an opportunity for us to sort of take a step back and to celebrate and to applaud and to recognize the fact that We have existed here at Purdue University on a predominantly white campus in a freestanding facility. It's sometimes unheard of on many campuses. And to see where you've come from and to see what you've been able to accomplish over the years is a cause of celebration.
Historically, in the late 1960s, was the height of the civil rights and the black arts movement. Here at Purdue University, there were very few African-American students who were enrolled in the late 1960s. Those students who were enrolled, and it was less than 150 African-American students, really felt that there was not anything that was reflective of their culture or their heritage here at Purdue University. The majority of the black students at Purdue decided that they wanted to have a demonstration. And they staged a silent protest. And they marched to Hovde Hall, the administration building, in single file lines, silently with brown paper bags. And inside the brown paper bag was a brick. When they arrived at the administration building, they opened their brown paper bags, and one by one, they laid the bricks on the steps of Hovde Hall. They met with the university president and presented the president a list of nine demands, and one of those demands was for a black cultural center. Located across the street from the armory is the new Black Culture Center, which opened in September. The first black cultural center was housed in an old residential unit at the corner of 3rd and University Street. It was a two-story home in which it was repurposed to be the black cultural center. They were very modest facilities, so it had some challenges as it relates to both the architecture and the age of the facility. In 1995, we launched the major capital campaign in which we raised money to be able to construct a new black cultural center facility. And then in 1999, we moved into this building. This particular facility is the first building at Purdue University that was designed by an African-American architectural firm. It is supposed to mimic a lot of architecture that you might find in Africa. So you walk in, you have this grand circle. The African architectural significance of the circle is to resemble an African village. So if you're in the circle and you make like an announcement, the entire village can actually hear. One of the most striking architectural elements is the shape of our receptionist desk. The desk is shaped like the hull of a ship. And you really can't talk about not just the black experience at Purdue or the African-American experience, period, and not talk about the transatlantic slave trade. So all of our group tours, we make them stand very close together so they can get the idea of what it's like to be packed tightly on a ship for weeks and months at a time. I'd like to share with our students that if their African ancestors could survive the horrors of the Middle Passage, then go into slavery, that Purdue University should be a piece of cake for them academically. The Black Cultural Center has a variety of resources that are available for students to take advantage of. We have the BCC Library, which is actually part of the Purdue Library system. And so there's over 7,000 books in its collection. In our library, we also have study spaces that students can use. The part that I love the most, though, is actually the formal lounge. We always set up different exhibits in these rooms from time to time. There's always some type of art display by current students, and that, for me, is impactful because I get to see what other students are doing. As part of our 50th anniversary celebration, we created an exhibit called A Journey Through Black Excellence. And what the exhibit does, it tells the powerful narrative of the African-American experience through the lens of the Black Cultural Center.
We also have a very robust, creative space here at the Black Cultural Center. We rehearse in the Antonio and Betty Zamora studio, which is a beautiful space, acoustically as well as aesthetically. One of our hallmark programs is what I call the heartbeat of the Black Cultural Center, which is our performing arts ensembles. We had the Jahari Dance Troupe, the New Directional Players Drama Company, the Haraka Writers Creative Writing Ensemble, and the Black Voices of Inspiration Choir. We also had the Black Thought Collective, which is our scholarly ensemble, and the Purdue Express. That ensemble is a recruitment ensemble for the university. The idea was to tap the talents of our Black Cultural Center students and, and put those to work in helping us recruit students to Purdue by, by sharing their Purdue story in song and dance with high schools around the state. And I think it's just been a phenomenal success. The most surprising element during my time here is just how intentional the Black Cultural Center is in discovering and unlocking what blackness is. I really feel that the Black Cultural Center has created a transformational experience for our students. The Black Cultural Center exists to educate not just African-American people, not just to support African-American people, but to educate, uplift, and support all students. The BCC is for you, whoever you are, whatever identities you hold. It's a place where everybody can come. The services that they have, the performance arts ensembles, and I was like, wow, this is a dope space. Black culture isn't just music or isn't just art. It's a lot of different things, and I think that the Black Cultural Center does a good job of fitting all of that into a building and fitting all of that into a community. Thanks for listening to This is Purdue. For more information on this episode, visit our website at purdue.edu slash podcast. There you can route to your favorite podcast app, subscribe, and leave a review. As always, boiler up. <laughs>